Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we ventilate your brain with weird and wonderful science. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this special aerosol edition, Professor Jose Luis Jimenez talks about the consequences of COVID-19 being mostly an airborne disease and the reason this reality has been resisted by medical authorities. Jose Luis Jimenez is a professor of chemistry and environmental sciences at the University of Colorado in Boulder in the US. He's been a champion of the fact that COVID-19 spreads by tiny aerosols floating long times in the air, rather than big droplets that fall to the ground within seconds, within two metres of infected people's breath. I spoke with him by Zoom and began by asking him, the World Health Organization has changed its definition of how COVID-19 spreads from exclusively big droplets to tiny droplet aerosols. How does that change how we protect people from the disease? Well, they have partially changed. They have gone from saying is almost completely droplets to saying that there is a fraction that's going through aerosols. That's not quite what we think is correct. We think it's mostly going through aerosols and droplets are anecdotal or a small fraction, right? What we call droplets and aerosols in, in this field is they are both little balls of saliva and respiratory fluid that can contain the virus if a person is infected and they leave the person. And droplets are the big ones and aerosols are the small ones. Droplets behave like projectiles. They fly like cannonballs through the air and they can hit you in the eye or in the nostril or in the mouth and they can infect you that way. And if they don't hit you or they hit you in the forehead or otherwise, they don't infect you, and otherwise they fall to the ground, right? Those are the droplets. And the aerosols are used much smaller, and then they behave differently. It's like cigarette smoke, which is another aerosol. You know, they, they are not a cannonball. They come out, but then they stop by friction with the air, and they don't fall to the ground. They float around, and they're carried by air currents. And aerosols infect us by inhalation. It's not by an impact on the eye or whatever, but it's by we inhale them into our respiratory system. Now, the, how to protect yourself against one and the other has a lot of similarities, but also has some differences, right? If you keep your distance, then the droplets won't hit you, these projectiles, but then you will also inhale a lot less aerosols. If you keep your distance with the smoker, you will inhale a lot of smoke. And then if you wear a mask, a mask will serve as a parapet against these droplets, but it will also serve as a filter against these aerosols, right? So there are, there are a lot of things that are common. But then there are things that, that protect you against aerosols and really not against droplets. For example, being outdoors, the droplets don't care, but the aerosols are dispersed much faster. They, they may rise or, or they, there is always more wind outdoors. And indeed we see that outdoors, there is 20 times less transmission of, of COVID-19 than there is indoors, right? And also the masks that we have to wear are different. We have to wear better masks that are also tight, very tight against our face because all the air that we breathe and that we exhale has to pass through them. Only then they work as a filter. And another thing that's important, that becomes important is ventilation, meaning the air that's indoors should go outdoors and we should get air from outdoors that doesn't have the virus, right? For, for a projectile, this doesn't matter. Or for a virus that's on a surface, this doesn't matter. 
but for aerosols, this matters a lot. And we see again that all the super spreading events of the pandemic, they are all the same thing. People spending a lot of time indoors, breathing the same air without ventilation, right? So, which again points to aerosols. So we're getting cases in Australia of people getting infected in hotel quarantine when they come from overseas. And the authorities are still saying they're puzzled when surely it's very easily explained by sharing the air that none of these places are designed for ventilation. And they share air in the corridor and between rooms without ever meeting each other. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of, it's been obvious for months. I don't know, your authorities or some of your authorities... (laughs) seem to really not want to admit it, you know, because it's, it's kind of obvious to anyone with a brain, I would say. I mean, the, basically, the, I mean the, the way this disease goes is that some of the infected people, not everyone, there are some infected people that are not infectious because they have a lower viral load or they make less aerosols, but some infected people are very infectious and they exhale a lot of aerosols that contain the virus. And then in a facility that's, you know, it's just not designed for something like that, like like some random hotel, these aerosols may go under the door and then they may accumulate in the corridor or they may, you know, there are there can be other air connections between rooms. And this is not, you know, we think kind of for the pandemic in general, this is not a very important mode of transmission because the virus is not so contagious. You know, so most people are, are infected talking to each other in close proximity or sharing the same room and breathing the same air a long time. But it is possible if you are unlucky and the air goes from one place to another that you can get some of these, what we call longer distance infection or long range infection. Now, in a place like the US, if this happens, you would never know, you know, someone would be infected and they have no idea why, because we have so many cases. But in Australia or in New Zealand, because you have no cases, suddenly someone is infected and they infect someone else it kind of becomes obvious and you have cameras in these hotels and that it becomes obvious that this is the only way, right? And, and New Zealand, in, in fact, has been more, uh, I think, more accepting of the role of airborne transmission. And I've seen a minister give press conference and saying, yeah, this is airborne transmission. But in Australia, I don't, don't know, I don't know why, but, but it's not, I don't think it's not, I, I don't think it is that they don't understand it. I think it's they don't want to accept it for, for some reason. In Sydney, we've got one case of a couple that got infected in the community and we don't know their connection to the people in the quarantine hotel, but they seem to have a similar variant of the virus. And all the contact tracing has failed, but it's all assuming droplets are not aerosols. And isn't contact tracing inevitably going to fall down when it is simply a longer distance than two metres that they're not taking into account? Yeah, I mean, contact tracing, the way it has been done in this pandemic is in most places is inherently biased, right? Because they only uh, do contact tracing on people that they call close contacts. And then close contacts are people who have been within six feet of each other. So, you know, if they had done contact tracing on the Skagit choir that we investigated, they would have contact trace five or six people, right? But 52 people got infected, right? So so it's, it's clear that you have to expand the definition of contact tracing and include people who certainly people who share the air in a room for a significant amount of time and even maybe people who were in an adjacent room or something like that which in places like like in australia you could afford because you don't have so many cases right again in the us when you have thousands of cases and if now 
you start to try to contact trace so many people. I mean, that's one reason why it has been restricted in that way is because, yeah, it, it is still the most likely situation that you get infected is in close proximity. And, and if you just have limited resources to do contact tracing, you should focus on those people. But then, then we shouldn't be misled because then sometimes people say, yeah, the contact tracing shows most of the infection is in close proximity. That's like a, like a chicken and egg. If you only look at people who are in close proximity, of course, the people you find who are infected are those who were in close proximity, right? Yes. And of course, all the medical authorities that the governments have been getting advice from have been looking to the World Health Organization. And I understand that they had some definitions wrong about droplets and aerosols and sizes of the little drops. Yeah, I mean, the WHO has been very wrong in this pandemic, in, in, this, in this particular area. And, but I wouldn't say, I mean, I would say it was the whole profession of epidemiology and infectious diseases worldwide that was in on the same error. And WHO was just epitomizing that, was, was just uh, an ex- showing that. And it happened to have some of the most adamant experts, kind of anti-airborne with um with an you know who had an attitude that was most hardened against airborne and but it has been the case at the CDC and it has been the case at the health ministries of almost every country because they, these people for 110 years they've all been believing that airborne transmission is something that's very difficult and very infrequent and you know therefore this has been very perplexed against against what given what what has been going on I mean the the error that you were referring to I mean there is I would, I would call that a symptom, right? So there is, there is an error that we were talking about droplets and aerosols and they're big and small. So how big, how small? So physics tells us, and, and a professor at Harvard, William Wells, worked this out in 1934, that big is above 100 microns. So bigger than a tenth of a millimeter, they behave like a projectile. And that's more or less the diameter of a hair, of a human hair. So you can see this in, in the right light, right? And then smaller than 100 uh, microns, then they, they, they float around and they, they can be inhaled and those are the aerosols, right? Now WHO said in, a, in what's a still their latest scientific brief on, on this subject that it was five microns. So they had an error of a factor of 20. And this is an error that has lived in WHO documents and CDC documents and medical literature for decades and decades and decades. And even though the aerosol scientists knew and published again and again and told them, no, 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 it's, it's not five microns, it's 100 microns. So, I mean, this, it, it may sound like a technicality, but I think it's a symptom of just how the droplet theory was so dominant that even though this is something you can verify in half an hour by doing some calculations, for decades and decades, they had completely ignored aerosol scientists. I mean, it was just flat out denial and just ignoring like like uh, other scientists had nothing to contribute. They knew these were droplets, right? You're listening to Ian Wolf on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. The bigger error and really the root of this 5 micron error syndrome was occurring in 1910. So during most of the history of humanity since Hippocrates in Greece, he's, he said, you know, when a lot of people get sick with the same disease, it must be the air, because that's what we, we share the most. And, so the, and then this became the theory of miasmas and 
basically diseases went through the air, but in a little bit of a phantasmagorical way, like they would go kilometers and, and there wasn't much you could do to defend yourself against it, right? I mean, some people said that someone will have the flu in Boston and then the, the virus or the, the, the miasma really would fly across the Atlantic and infect someone in the UK, you know, and, and stuff like that. So what, what, how can you protect yourself against something like that, right? So then, and then there were, you know there was a lot of a lot of debate, and but in in the late 1800s, you know, germ theory flourishes, and finally we realize, oh, infectious diseases are because a germ we acquire a germ that was inside someone else. And in 1910, there is really the, the critical moment. There is a, an American public health researcher named Charles Chapin, and he is a very smart person, and he compiles a lot of the evidence that since since germ theory about how different diseases were transmitted and what, what were the germs and they were cholera was going through water and this other disease was going through food and and then he gets to the question of, of respiratory diseases and do they go through the air kind of from something like a miasma and he has a concept that he calls contact infection he says that no we you know it's not really the air it's when we are close to other people and either we touch them and then we touch our eyes our nose or uh, there are these droplets, these visible droplets that when some, someone coughs or sneezes, they land on your eyes or something like that. And that's how we get infected. It's not through airborne infection, but it's through contact infection. Even though when we are near other people, we are also breathing their exhaled air, much like if you smell the garlic in, in their exhaled air, that's because you are, you are inhaling a lot of the air they exhale, right? So when we are close, airborne transmission is, is also most likely. But he wrote in, in this book, he basically said, you know, I've been trying to promote that contact infection is the most important mode of infection. And I really ran into trouble because people are still convinced that they're getting infected through the air and then they don't want to wash their hands and they don't want to keep distance, social distance, because why would you do that since at the end you're going to get infected through the air, right? So then his solution is to say, well, we don't have a lot of evidence of infection through the air, so I'm going to just deny it. And in the book, he just denies it. And he says, you know, when we get infected in close proximity, it's not because we're breathing other people's exhaled air, it's because of these large droplets that are impacting our eyes, our, our nostrils, our mouth. He says this without evidence. No evidence existed. So this is something he used, a hypothesis he made up, but he just put it forward and, you know, was incredibly successful with this. I mean, contact infection, you know, he, there is a lot of truth in it, but, but then there was this error embedded into it, right? And in 1927, he becomes the president of the American Public Health Association. And in 1951, Alexander Langmer, who's um, the first and longtime director of the epidemiology branch of the CDC in the US, he says, basically, it remains to be proven that any disease is airborne, any natural disease is airborne. And he, he basically, and Langmuir, again, so this is really important person in the CDC, refers to Chapin as the greatest American epidemiologist. And as late as 1980, you know, there were still basically contact infection and Chapin was, was dominant, right? So we have basically, Chapin in 1910 says, puts this concept forward and it becomes extremely dominant. And airborne diseases are resisted and, and denied. And, it's only really accepted basically when it's undeniable and as little as possible. So for tuberculosis, there are these magnificent experiments with animals and then, you know, they are undeniable. And then for smallpox, actually in 1971, there is, a, there is cases similar to the quarantine hotels that you're having now 
in a hospital in Germany, and then it's accepted that that was airborne transmission, even though the investigators write in the journal paper that they were all prejudiced against accepting it because that was again it was the mood of the time. It was the but they accepted, but then they accepted only for that case. They said basically it was exceptional. Smallpox, all the other time is a droplet disease, but here it was airborne, but it was an exception, <laughs> right? So again, accepting as little as possible. And then missiles, who's who's now now they tell us is a prototype of a highly transmissible airborne disease. In 1985, they were still saying it was a droplet disease, you know. So it's but it's finally accepted after you know super spreading events happen over and over and they can be denied. And, but basically, for other diseases that are less contagious, like the flu, even though there is similar evidence as for COVID with outbreaks and things like that, it's, it's been denied, resisted as much as possible. And, and the same was true with COVID. So the same thing that we saw since 1910 happened for COVID. You know, and WHO said, no, 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 it's not airborne. And then, like what they said now, it's like, well, it can be airborne under some circumstances, but admitting as little as possible. When, when, when in reality, all the evidence points to COVID is basically, I mean, I don't see any scientific evidence that it is not 99% airborne. It's possible that it transmits in other ways, but I think these droplets and surfaces are, are probably minor. You know, Maybe it's only 90% airborne, but, but you know, that's what we should be fighting. And that's one reason why we've been doing so poorly in this pandemic. So people that are using those plexiglass shields in shops, for example, where you've got the person serving you is on one side of the shield and you're on the other side as the customer that's designed to stop droplets are the aerosols just going to bounce off and then go up into the air and stay in the room all day i mean so that kind of thing this plexiglass so they, yeah that they, they come from the concept that you have to stop this these projectiles right and you put a parapet and you are protected right so now they, they are useful in one situation which is in a cashier situation so you are you are paying at the supermarket or a at the bank or something, because they, I mean, if there is any droplets, they certainly stop them, but the more important transmission, which is breathing someone else's exhaled air, if you imagine a smoker and you, the smoke coming out now hits this wall and then it has to rise and it has to be diluted before the other person breathes it, right? So so they do have some protection in that situation, but, but when they are lateral as in offices or in schools or something like that, they, they don't help because then you are not, you don't have anyone that you, that you, that's looking at you that, that you would be breathing the air off directly. And they actually hurt because they make ventilation more difficult and they create pockets of air where the virus can accumulate. And there was a paper in Science last week where they would look at different interventions in the schools and installing these barriers doubled the risk of infection. So they should actually be removed from most locations where they have been installed with the exception of kind of this cashier or this teller situation. Well, I'm glad the people in the shops are a little bit protected. I've noticed also on TV shows now, they're, as well as distancing people, they're putting those sideways shields. And it sounds like they're actually putting their guests in more danger, not less. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's not helping. They, they should increase ventilation and they should facilitate ventilation. So if the virus is there is that is not trapped in some eddies behind one of these barriers, but we just clear it out as quickly as possible. And, and these things have, have cost, you know, you, if you have to buy these ba big barriers of plexiglass, this costs money. You could use that money to put air filters mm. that remove the virus from the air. For example, there are HEPA filters or there are cheaper filters you can build with a fan. And it's clear that this, this work, I have colleagues in Spain who have put filters in schools, and then they see 
they do PCR analysis on, on the filter after the filter has been in the school and they see the virus is there. And the virus could only have arrived there if it was floating in the air and then the filter removed it from the air so that nobody could breathe it, right? So if you are gonna invest money, I mean, this is, at the end, we've wasted enormous amounts of money, billions of dollars in, in disinfection, in disinfecting surfaces when there is basically zero cases that have demonstrated transmission through surfaces. But surfaces, the logic is if droplets are infective and then the, when the droplets, if they don't hit you, they fall into a surface and then therefore they must continue to be infective. So it was it's kind of connected to this, this same unproven hypothesis of the droplet infection, right? But it doesn't seem to work that way. I mean, it's, it's, it's theoretically possible, but it doesn't seem to be easy because with 300 million cases in the world and so many cases have been investigated, if it was easy to get infected through surfaces, we will have seen some cases, right? Much like we have seen lots of cases that can only be explained by airborne transmission. So to be clear, the aerosols are more concentrated the closer you are to someone. So you're still in more danger when you're closer. So do cloth masks and disposable masks offer some protection from spreading the disease? Yes, the, any mask offers some protection, right? Because the, the aerosols come in a range of sizes and anything you put on your mouth, some of the air you breathe will go through it, right? And then when it goes through a piece of cloth, some of the aerosols will stick to the mask. And once they stick, they, they will stay there, right? Now there is a huge variation, right? Between a bandana or some t-shirt that you cut and then you put in front of your mouth, that may have a five or a 10% protection, meaning, you know, 90% of the virus goes through, but 10% stuck in the mask. And then you can go to cloth masks that are, have three layers of cloth and that fit well on your face, that they don't leave gaps. And those can be 60, 70, even 90% effective. And then you go to something like an N95 mask, and those can be 99% effective. So, so when we say masks, there is just enormous differences on, on, on the quality of masks. And really, what, something else that has emerged in this pandemic, I mean, the N95 mask, which is kind of still understood by many as the gold standard, is an invention from the 1990s where someone realized this, they could do this, this melt polypropylene and then make these very small fibers that they could put an electric charge on them. And then they were a really good filter and they were also very breathable. So the air could go through, but they, but they were really a good filter to remove the viruses. But then, then we make some shape out of this material. And then we ask that when it sits in our face, it seals well, it doesn't have any gaps. And they're not so good at that, right? So then in hospitals, they have to do all this fit testing and whatever, because it's actually difficult for these masks to sit in your face and not have leaks. And any leak that looks small, a lot of the air goes through there, right? Because it, it takes less effort for the air to go through there than to go through the mask. So there is this new type of mask that are like called um, elastomeric half masks that are much better because they use the filter of the N95. That's a good filter and you can breathe through it. But then they use basically a bead of silicone, which is a centimeter in diameter, and that's what pushes against your face. And then there's just a piece of plastic that connects the silicone with the, with the mask, with the filter itself, right? And those are way superior, you know? So some months ago in February, we sent a letter to the Biden administration here in the US asking them to activate the Defense Production Act and produce these by the tens of millions, which, which is feasible, but 
Unfortunately, they were used to focus on the vaccines and they haven't followed through. But that's that's something that I hope, you know, as the flu will continue to be a, a concern and as we prepare for the next pandemic, that we really learn and, and, and we leave N95 masks for the museums and, and, and really invest in this new type of masks that, that are better. That was part one of my discussion with Professor Jose Luis Jimenez from the University of Colorado in Boulder, USA, about the aerosol spread of COVID. Cloth masks with one layer offer 10% protection. Three layers offers 80 to 90% protection. But the best protection is from reusable, tight-fitting elastomer masks. Plexiglass shields do protect salespeople at the checkout, but not people at desks where the shields are at the sides instead of in front of their face. Listen next week when he explains the history of the reluctance of medical authorities to accept changes in the way they think about airborne disease and the changes we need to make to keep people safer than we have. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Are you a scientist, artist, biohacker or maker who'd like to be interviewed about your work? Would your company like to sponsor Diffusion? Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 28 stations on the community radio network, including... Radio Blue Mountains 89.1 FM in New South Wales, 8 Triple C in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2 NVR in Nambucca Valley, 3 NBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, City Park Radio 7 LTN in Launceston, Tasmania, and 2 XFM in Canberra. Diffusion is narrowcast on Indigo FM 88 in northeast Victoria. Diffusion is syndicated globally on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, then you can explore more than a thousand previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com, where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Make a donation through paypal.me slash Ian Wolf, or join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolf. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits photography, collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.